From the New York offices of Oxford University Press, this is the Oxford Comment, a monthly podcast featuring insights from Oxford University Press authors, editors, and more. My name is Sarah, multimedia producer and your host for this episode. September marks Library Card Sign-Up Month in the U.S., which, according to the American Library Association, began to be celebrated in 1987 in order to meet the then-Secretary of Education William J. Bennett's goals for library card registration. The campaign is mostly aimed at children, which raises the question, do children today value the American library in the same way as children did in pre-internet America? How has the American library evolved and adapted through the years? I was pointed in the right direction by Estelle. You remember Estelle, OUP associate publicist and host of the Oxford Comment on two previous episodes. She put me in contact with Wayne Wiegand, author of Part of Our Lives, A People's History of the American Public Library. I called Wayne late in the afternoon since he's on the West Coast, and asked him about the history of the American Public Library. It's commonly accepted that the first major public library was Boston, which opened up in 1854. But there were lots of different kinds of libraries that preceded the opening of the Boston Public Library that served as its predecessors. So to answer your question, I went back all the way to uh, 1731 and prior, Uh, 1731 is when uh, Benjamin Franklin uh, and several of his friends organized the Library Company of Philadelphia. (laughs) I'm not surprised to hear Ben Franklin's name associated with it. (laughs) Yeah, you can can generally find a bust of Ben Franklin in most public libraries. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so uh, when you went that that far back, what what sort of testimonies were, were given? Fortunately for me, Uh, When I started this project, several vendors had started massive digitization uh, projects on newspapers, many of which uh, went back to the 17th century in in colonial America. Franklin, for example, bragged an awful lot about the Library Company of Philadelphia, uh, arguing it was the the prototype for all social libraries that followed thereafter, and I think with with some uh, veracity. Wayne had researched and compiled many testimonies about American libraries since their inception. I asked him what's changed and what hasn't changed throughout the centuries. In part because technology changed, in part because immigrants would come and they changed the demographics of communities which serve libraries, but there generally is a theme that runs throughout, and that is once people attached themselves to public libraries, they grew to love them. And uh, it's not that everybody in America attached themselves to a public library, but that number does increase from 1854 to the present day. Wayne gave some powerful examples of how people attach themselves to their libraries. The public libraries are revered for three main reasons. First, information access, which is something that librarianship has always acknowledged and promoted and advocated, but also for the reading of commonplace uh, fiction. And the third thing is the library functioning as a a place where people go to uh, effect community if possible. So I'll give you an example for each of those. Okay, let's let's start with information access. Uh, Thomas Edison, 
would strike a beeline for the public library at the end of a workday in order to learn as much as he could about electricity in the collections of the Detroit Public Library and the Cincinnati Public Library. He moved from one to the other during his, his uh, early late teenage years, early 20s. So there's an example of information access. Um, let's move to commonplace reading. And here, the surprise for me was how many times I found people saying how inspired, uh, informed, empowered, uh, stimulated they were by certain commonplace fiction. Sonia Sotomayor, currently justice on the Supreme Court, uh, as a young woman, uh, as an adolescent, um, loved to read Nancy Drew. And uh, what she found in Nancy Drew novels, the kind of serial fiction that I talk, call commonplace reading, was her, she loved to figure out the puzzles. And she, in her autobiography, traces her curiosity about the law back to her reading of Nancy Drew. So that's an example of the reading part. Now, for Library is Place, one of my favorite uh, uh, anecdotes is um, 1939 in the Sweet Auburn branch of the Atlanta Public Library. The Sweet Auburn branch was located in the African-American neighborhood and represented one of the few places that African-Americans could go in Jim Crow Atlanta where they were both welcome and safe. So the librarian there, who was also an African-American, uh, monitoring her um, Sweet Auburn branch, and in comes 10-year-old Martin Luther King Jr. And she and Martin Luther King Jr. strike up this relationship such that he comes in, he stands by her desk, says nothing, looks her straight in the eye, and she says, what can I do for you today, Martin Luther? And she always called him by his first and second name. And he said, oh, nothing particularly. And that was a cue to the librarian that uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. had learned a new word and he wanted to practice it. And so they would exchange sentences which enabled him to uh, use that word in correct ways. Another thing he would regularly do is come in, stand by her desk, look her in the eye and wait for her to say, what can I do for you today, Martin Luther? And then he would recite the first one or two lines of a poem. And the librarian often recognized the poem and then would finish it. So that's where I say library as place had an extremely important um, effect on the relationship uh, of, of humans occupying that particular space for particular uh, periods of time. I, I noticed that like all three of them, they seem very, very young in these stories. Did you read a lot of testimonies of people reflecting on um, how important it was for young children to go to the public yes, library? Yes, and that's another message that, that comes through strongly and clearly. The American Public Library is probably uh, makes its greatest contribution to uh, young people. Now, old people still, when I say old, uh, you know, people over 21, they do use it, and they use it regularly. But uh, they're sort of reinforcing things, if my reading of American public library history is correct. They're reinforcing values they acquired at earlier ages when the public library probably had its greatest effect. Now, I don't want to diminish the reinforcing of values because that is also an important human behavior. The American Library was instrumental in the lives of Thomas Edison, Sonia Sotomayor, and Martin Luther King Jr. 
but their library experiences must be strikingly different from how children use American libraries today. I wanted to investigate further, and Estelle came through for me again by putting me in touch with Emma Carbone, who is a librarian here in New York. We sat down together on a quiet Friday afternoon in the OUP office, and I started out by asking her about her specialty. Uh, my specialty is youth services with more of a focus toward young adult literature, and uh, right now I also do uh, young adult programming in my current position, although I also am lucky and get to do children's programming and story times with the younger kids too. We do gaming with the teens, uh, with video game programs, usually like a Wii system set up. I have a weekly crochet club that I run with a dedicated group of uh, regulars who have been making a variety of stuffed animals over the past couple of weeks. And we also have weekly craft programs that we call Makerspace. So we have, there can be anything from drawing to, they often do origami, things like that. Emma works with teens and children who frequent the library every day. So I asked her for her testimony, an example or an anecdote about young patrons. Well, we have a lot of fun teen regulars who spend a lot of time in the library over the summer. Um, one of them has sort of made himself a de facto volunteer and helper in the library. So he came running in yesterday morning and he was like, Emma, I'm so sorry I'm late. And, you know, he's like, I had things to do in the morning. I was very busy. And he was just coming in to use the computer and hang out for the day. So it's kind of great knowing that he feels very valued and like he's adding a lot to the library space. I noticed that Emma's story had echoes of the story Wayne told me about Martin Luther King Jr. and his neighborhood librarian. It has that same theme of community, of the library serving as a safe space to hang out, and for this teen in particular, it seems to create a sense of belonging and responsibility. So it seems like people today are definitely still going to libraries. And Wayne gave me some surprising statistics. Right now, for example, about two-thirds of American citizens have frequented the threshold of a public library at least once per year, and almost that many have uh, borrowers' cards. So the numbers are very high. And which some people would, would find surprising because they, they feel like, I feel like at a certain point people were calling libraries outdated, but that hasn't been the case. Yeah. No, the statistics prove uh, exactly the opposite. Uh, at this point in our history, there are more public libraries than there ever were before. I love to, to uh, uh, quote this. There are more public libraries in, in, in the United States than there are McDonald's restaurants. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you can't turn a corner uh, without finding a McDonald's. But, of course, McDonald's doesn't exist necessarily in some of the rural environments. And 80% of public libraries uh, are in towns of 25,000 people or less. That's a lot of Americans going to libraries. But the landscape has changed significantly for both patrons and librarians since Ben Franklin's time. Photographer Kyle Cassidy captured the modern-day American librarian through a series of portraits and interviews. Slate.com published an article about the project in February 2014 called This is What a Librarian Looks Like. The article stirred up a lively discussion amongst librarians and about librarians, and the experience inspired Kyle to continue with the project. I know this because Estelle worked her magic a third time, and Kyle agreed to chat with me. I called him up 
and asked him how this all got started. Um, this started sometime in 2014 in the in the winter. I got a, a tweet from a librarian named uh, Naomi Gonzalez who said, librarians are going to be in your town and we're very photogenic, hint, hint. And I wrote back to her and asked if she could set up a, a portrait session with some librarians because it sounded like an interesting thing to do. And um, I went and I photographed, I think, about 20 librarians um, at the Midwinter Conference, which was in Philadelphia, which was my hometown. And Slate ran it, um, I think, a, a week and a half later. And it went viral and became, at the time, I believe, the most popular photo essay that they had ever done. And um, it, it did so well. And it started a huge conversation among librarians. It started what I think of sometimes as the Great Librarian War of 2014, um, where a lot of librarians didn't like it. And uh, there was much infighting, and many blog posts went back and forth. And I took some of the uh, criticisms and uh, did a Kickstarter to photograph more librarians uh, later on in the year, about six months later. And I was hoping to add 100 new voices to the collection, and I ended up photographing and interviewing more than 300 librarians um, in, in total that second time around. And what was the, was the criticism just that um, you, you should have a wider pool of, of people? Or? That, was, that was one of them, um, was that the, the sample wasn't representative, and also some people complained that nobody... It didn't matter what a librarian looked like. Um, in getting a lot more voices, in fact, some of the most vocal critics were uh, assuaged by the, the second round of, of photos. And I think most everybody's happy now. If you take a look at the portraits on Slate's website, you'll see how the simplicity of the photograph's compositions actually makes them more powerful representations of each subject. Each one has a simple gray background and a single light source and each librarian is framed from the waist up or from the thigh up. Some look into the camera, and some don't. I asked Kyle about his stylistic decisions for this series. Much of my photography is about contexts, which is either people in their environments or people removed from their environments. And I wanted a very small uh, kit that I could carry by myself and because I was getting off an airplane and then dropping my stuff off at home and getting on a train and going to photograph the librarians. I wanted it to be small. And so I used uh, one light with uh, an umbrella and a neutral gray backdrop. And I think that by eliminating the libraries themselves, it would be a totally different book if I had gone around and photographed librarians in their libraries. And there are actually lots of books of pictures of libraries. And I think that by taking people out of the context of the library, you are focusing on them as a person and then the words that they have to say. And that was a big part of the process, realizing that I needed to isolate these people and draw a very narrow focus of attention on them rather than overwhelming people with too much information. In addition to taking their photos, Kyle also conducted interviews with the librarians who came to his studio. He relayed a few of their stories to me. There's a, a librarian I met named uh, Brittany Bird from uh, Montana, and her library is a diesel truck because uh, a lot of the places in Montana 
are so far apart and so rural that getting to a library becomes a serious problem for people. So she drives the library from town to town and people come to the this truck and they check out books and the the truck has free Wi-Fi too. So some people might not have an internet connection. And this is another thing that I learned about libraries. Too, that in some places, I met librarians from uh, Alaska who had the only reliable internet connection in the entire town. There was uh, another librarian named uh, Brioni Beckstrom who is, uh, she started out in, in Chicago, but uh, she's in a different city now and I can't remember exactly where it is. It's in Milwaukee. She realized that a lot of the people coming into her library uh, couldn't afford uh, dolls. And so she started a lending program for uh, dolls. And it became extraordinarily popular, one of the most popular things that the library had done. Kyle has plans to publish a book compiling all of his work on this project called Alexandria Still Burns. There will be touring gallery shows and a documentary as well. Librarians and Libraries Internet Presence extends far beyond a Twitter war in 2014. Emma just celebrated eight years of her blog, Miss Print, which features book reviews, author interviews, book recommendation lists, and much more. I asked her about Miss Print's origins. I actually started it when I realized I would be applying to library school because it seemed like it could be a good sort of writing sample for my application and also a way to build knowledge with young adult books and children's books, since I knew if I was going to go down that path, that would be the specialty I'd want to choose. There's a lot of book bloggers now. When I started, it wasn't really a thing. There were a few specialized librarians who had blogs, and I modeled from that, but it wasn't something I was like, you know, yes, I'll be a full-time librarian. I'll be, you know, eight years down the line and still doing this. It's a very interesting thing looking back from where I started. Has has it ever sort of intersected those experiences, blogging and, and being a librarian? Um, they've intersected in some ways. Uh, the blogging and obviously I do a lot of reading for that and it helps me with reader's advisory at work when kids come in and they're like, you know, I just read the Percy Jackson books and I read them all five times. I need something else. So it's a good way for me to stay on my toes and find different connections. Emma also remarked on how libraries have evolved and adapted in the digital age. There's definitely been a shift in recent years. You know, it used to be, where can I find this information in the library? And now it's often, where can I find this information on the internet or anywhere that I need to look for it. With uh, students, there's more online research evaluation, you know, things like, is this a reputable website? Also with Kindles and things, it's great to have a larger ebook collection and be able to get people to read books that way. It seems like one of the defining characteristics of the American library is how incredibly adaptable they've been. I asked Wayne about the library's staying power and its evolution. The American Public Library is probably a civic institution that has been able to adapt much better than other civic institutions in the United States. Why do you think that is? Well, I think a major reason is it is so close to its community. And because the governance structure draws its leadership from local people, that those local people keep the services and the collections and the, the profile of the institution close to the local citizenry. When the citizenry wants to move in a particular direction, the public library uh, sometimes anticipates, 
sometimes leads in that direction. Again, across those three areas, information access, reading, and library as place, um, it's, it's, it's a complex set of relationships that depends on uh, the individual and how he or she processes the interactions that take place within the American Public Library that, that he or she goes to. Will these three pillars, information access, casual reading, and community space, continue to influence American libraries in the future? I asked Emma, Kyle, and Wayne for their thoughts. Libraries in many ways are shifting more to focus on services offered rather than materials. You know, it used to be just about books or you come to the library to get this information and now it's sort of the library is a gateway and a starting point to say, this is what you do next or this is where you go next. I mean, I do think there's been a shift with people sort of seeing librarians as people to go to and sort of become part of the community, whether it's with programming or coming to, you know, gaming for teens or just getting book recommendations regularly. So it's sort of nice to sort of be able to see the library and the librarians getting a bigger place in a lot of people's views as helping and not just, you know, here's the person who's going to put, you know, paper towns on hold for me. Kyle also pointed out the transition away from providing physical materials to a focus on services. In some places like Los Angeles, one of the libraries has a program to feed homeless teenagers who have been hanging out in front of the library. And one of the librarians said, well, you know, maybe we could feed these people too. And this is something that, you know, I never thought of a library uh, doing. So, you know, these are things that, that impressed me about libraries, that they are not warehouses full of books anymore. And... Many libraries are, in fact, reducing the number of physical books that they have so they can provide other services like meeting spaces. I, well, I think that the technology that is amazing everybody, uh, you know, the digital technology, is really opening doors for librarians to provide services that they're very excited about uh, providing, and it's much easier for them to provide uh, now using digital services. A lot of libraries have 3D printers, things like that, and... Uh, and classes on on making things that have, have maker spaces in their libraries, and libraries are not running from the future. They are holding the door open for people and saying this way. I also wanted to share Wayne's response, in which he spoke about the future of the physical book. In the late 1980s, early 1980s, excuse me, when the the computer began to have a significant impact on library practices. There were a lot of people who predicted the demise of the library. And today, for example, um, you can read it in the comments of uh, politicians who want to squeeze the budgets of libraries. They perceive that electronic books are going to be the future. I think they're wrong about that. I think electronic books will, uh, the popularity of electronic books will plateau and that there will be a substantial fraction of the American public that still wants the physical book in their hands. I think for people to think that libraries will become electronic largely in the future is a wrong one. History tells us that's not going to happen. There were a lot of concerns that when the automobile was adopted, people would, uh, would not uh, use libraries much. There were a lot of concerns when TV was adopted that it would pull people away from libraries and reading. None of those have proved true. And I think this, the statistics that uh, came out uh, 
recently about library use demonstrate that the, the libraries are still community centers with a variety of services that people want to have. It's difficult to make blanket statements about American libraries. As the librarians who responded to Kyle's project have pointed out, there is no one way to be a librarian, or an American library in this case. From all the stories we've heard on this episode, it seems like each library is a reflection of the community that sustains it. What is a common denominator, as Emma, Kyle, and Wayne all pointed out, is that libraries are not irrelevant. A library card provides access to services beyond the materials housed in the library. Research databases, Kindles, Roku's with Netflix already installed, ebooks, audiobooks, the list continues to grow. Libraries also provide a much needed community space, a place to hold events, meetings, tutoring, crafts, art exhibitions, film screenings, comic book conventions. All of this is navigated by your friendly neighborhood librarians, who are pioneering new ways for libraries to flourish. Many thanks to Estelle, Emma, who you can check out at missprint.wordpress.com, and on Twitter her handle is miss underscore print, Kyle, who you can check out at kylecassidy.com, and on Twitter his handle is kylecassidy, Wayne, whose book is called Part of Our Lives, A People's History of the American Public Library, and you. Thanks for listening. You can find our episodes, as always, on SoundCloud, iTunes, and the OUP blog. Hope to see you at the library.